musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with today, I want to let you know about the memorial that will be held to honor the life and work of Sasha Shulgin. As you know, uh, Sasha left this planet on the 2nd of June this year, and what is being billed as the Shulgin Memorial will be held on August 2nd, which is, uh, I guess, about two weeks from now. And I'll put a link to the event in the program notes for this podcast, which, uh, as you know, you can reach via psychedelicsalon.us. The memorial is going to take place in Berkeley, California from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Berkeley Community Theater, and it's going to include a potluck dinner for everybody who attends. So if you're in or near the Bay Area and would like to uh, find a few more of the others, uh, as the saying goes, well, you, uh, you should be able to find a very large number of the others at this event. And if you are planning on attending, please be sure to uh, go to the website that I linked to, and uh, there you can RSVP. There's uh, going to be plenty of room, but the organizers uh, would like to get as close a headcount as possible. And also, uh, driving and uh, potluck directions (laughs) are on that website as well. Uh, I'm not going to be able to make it myself, but I am looking forward to hearing about it from our fellow saloners who will be attending. I'm sure there's going to be many of you there. Okay, uh, so let's get on with today's show. In case you're wondering, uh, no, I haven't played all of the 2013 Palenque Norte lectures yet, but I thought that in the interest of reaching the most people with uh, the announcement I just made about the Shulgin Memorial, well, uh, a Terrence McKenna talk is always going to get the most listeners. Uh, and see, it worked. Uh, here you are. <laughs> So, uh, anyhow, I'm going to play part of a workshop that took place in August of 1989, which uh, was almost 25 years ago. And again, I've uh, had to pick a title based on what I thought the main thrust of his talk was about, but, you know, since he crafts his talks by the questions he receives from the attendees at his workshops, there's, uh, well, there's usually more than one title that can work. In fact, uh, my first pass at a title for this talk was Information is Bootstrapping Itself. (laughs) But now that I've said that out loud, I can uh, see that the title I used is actually a little bit better. Now, uh, also, a little heads up for you, because uh, sometimes Terrence, uh, you know, he gets you to thinking about something, and for a few seconds you miss what he's been saying in the interim, uh, because, you know, your thoughts are up there with what he uh, got you to think about. So I want to uh, let you know to focus on uh, what he says right after he uses the phrase mansions of our souls, which is a pretty neat phrase, come to think of it. But that's where he uh, begins his talk about virtual reality and uh, letting people come into the mansion of our soul and see who we really are. Now, he's talking about it as a VR program of some kind where you physically or virtually walk through a mansion. But uh, now that uh, you at first may be captivated by thinking about how you would actually decorate your own mansion when he says that, but instead just listen to his words and see if you don't think that he is actually describing what today we call social media. And this was way back in August of 1989. So I, I can talk endlessly, but I I hope with this many people in the room, people arrived with some kind of an agenda. With only three brief nights here, uh, we'll have to cut to the chase. So uh, if anyone came with any particular question in mind, this would probably be the moment to push to the front of the line. Yeah. These extremely exotic fields, solid-state physics and nanotechnology and gene transplant and all this stuff, they feel individually that complete breakthrough in their own field lies just 18 months, two years, three years in the future. They can see their technological and uh, and research dreams converging. But this enormous wave front of knowledge that has risen up out of the context of human civilization, it doesn't communicate along its 
the front of the wave. None of these people in any of these fields have a very clear grip on what's going on in the labs down the hall or two floors up uh, in different departments. So uh, what's happening is the human database has taken on a kind of self-organizing quality. It's no longer entirely being coordinated by political decision makers or corporate decision makers. It's just simply taken on uh, a life of its own. And I've long thought that one way of thinking about what's going on on this planet is that information is just simply bootstrapping itself to higher and higher levels of self-reflection and self-coordination using whatever means are necessary. When geology was all there was, that was the medium. When biology was all there was, that was the medium. When, you know, chipped flint and ceramic was all there was, that was the medium. And now... uh, the electronic information transfer technology is so all-pervasive that it's as though information has come into its own. I mean, it is now very restless in its relationship with biology as it explores, you know, the new world of silicone into which it seeks to uh, transform itself. I mean, technology has become prosthesis for the human species and, uh, uh, you know, it's our machines and our technologies that are now the major evolutionary forces acting upon us. It's not our political systems. It's uh, these uh, extra-sexual children, these mind children that we have uh, assembled out of the uh, imagination. And uh, I find it very promising and very challenging and very interesting. I think that it is uh, that somehow the way back to the archaic, to the world of ecological balance and low technology and uh, retraction of toxic infrastructure and all of that good stuff doesn't lie in some kind of Luddite know-nothingism or some kind of fascist program of, uh, of uh, limiting population and, and uh, this sort of thing. Although I favor limiting population, I just can't figure out a way to do it that leaves human uh, freedom intact. Uh, instead, it has to be a forward escape, a forward escape through technology, but technology that serves an agenda of archaic revivalism. Uh, my brother was just here this weekend and uh, after we presented publicly, then we spent a long night talking over all of this stuff. Uh, between the spread of the information transfer technology, the internet and its promise of virtual reality soon to come, and uh, biotechnology, which is literally taking apart the constituents of the living world and using them to produce all the drugs, all the foods, all the vitamins, all the nutritional supplements, uh, and then many other uh, solid-state materials between those two factors and then nanotechnology, the technology of producing tiny machines made of diamond by the trillions designed to do everything uh, that nature does so that uh, cities can be grown like forests and China can be fed out of matter compilers and there is a complete break with the need uh, with the agricultural cycle so that the earth need no longer sustain the human population and and so then the human population it, by breaking its reliance on the agricultural cycle you know then you 
gain some political breathing room. All of this uh, is coming very, very fast and uh, is largely unanticipated by the political uh, managerial types. What it means uh, to me personally, I think, in terms of my own ideas about the future is that I can now see without too much sweat from here to the eschaton uh, in ten easy steps. I mean, it's perfectly clear that if, if novelty is intensifying and locally concentrating, that where it's probably headed is into cyberspace or some kind of virtual space, so that, you know, long before 2012, the various ontologies of world religions will be peddled as theme parks in virtual space. And, you know, you'll be hard-pressed to know whether you're in heaven or simply in heaven land, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, a preview of heaven attainable by paying a $50 entrance fee at the turnstile. This is going to make it very difficult for m- all my predictions to be put in context because they will be both true and untrue. They will, everything will come true in cyberspace. That's the whole idea. What cyberspace is, on one level, It's simply the human imagination vivified, hardwired. What what we're doing furiously, as fast as we can, is exteriorizing the human nervous system into a global organism of some sort, which has a weird kind of Husserlian intersubjectivity about it. You know, it is neither it is neither subjective nor objective. We are subjective nodes embedded in this domain of technologically created intersubjectivity between other human beings and uh, and machines. And uh, what's happening is a lot of people are being left behind, or without even realizing it, are just opting out and saying, you know, I can't handle it, it's too much to think about, I think I'll see what's on daytime TV, or I'll buy a newspaper, or I'll walk in the park to attempt to maintain the illusion that, uh, you know, things are as they are. Things aren't as they are. Things have already become as they will be. The future is now not ahead of us, uh, we're there. We're there. And the only question is, where do you position yourself now in this multidimensional matrix? You can deny it, which is to become um, a conservative or at even more reactive to it. A, uh, you can become a reprobate, if you wish, uh, or you can move toward the front of knowledge, position yourself close to these unfolding and empowering technologies. Uh, As all notions of commodity and scarcity uh, and this sort of thing begin, begin, I say, to break down, it seems to me the, the sanest place to try and occupy in this whole situation is that of artist-producer. And that it's very, very important to not consume this stuff. That the world is being divided into artists and marks to uh, people who are like somehow initiated into a higher level maturity about what the society is about and how it works. It's a kind of street smarts, actually. And then the poor souls who just take it all for granted. 
you know, and actually are concerned about those families of Flight 800, the families, the families, the agony of the families. You know, people so harebrained as to buy horse shit like that are going to have a very, very hard time as the crap game of the future unfolds to its full fury. So uh, I think it's, it's very important for people to... Uh, to uh, define themselves as artists and learn tools and understand just how the game is being played in this informational jungle that is being erected because you will either have a plan or you will become part of somebody else's plan and there are a million plans out there waiting to ensnare the clueless so more than ever, it becomes necessary to have some kind of anchor into a real modality. Uh, and, you know, it's too predictable for me to try and draw out the suspense. I mean, f- as far as I can tell, the only, predic- the only um, uh, place where we can touch the earth in this evolving situation is through our bodies into feeling by any means necessary. And that would certainly include uh, psychedelics. The two books, or two very interesting books that I've read in the past year, and maybe some of you have read them, uh, one is Morris Berman's uh, Coming to Our Senses, and the other is David Abrams' book The Spell of the Sensuous. And both of these books are about feelings, essentially. And Whitehead, who I take as my mentor, uh, you know, created a very a mathematically formal metaphysic in which the primary datum of experience is feelings. I mean, that's a direct quote from Whitehead. Uh, the only thing you can trust at this point and some of you have heard me say this before, is the felt presence of immediate experience, otherwise known as feelings, and mathematics. And mathematics is something that most of you have been denied in order to keep you marks. So all you have are feelings. And so it's very important to... uh, um, empower this dimension which Husserl or Merleau-Ponty or somebody called the felt presence of immediate experience. Everything proceeds from that. Uh, even thought is subsequent to feeling and still more removed is any hypothesis about reality and any theory of morality and any theory of action and uh, and so forth and so on. And so, uh, you know, psychedelics, which have traditionally, I now think, played the role of deculturating people. I think the anthropologists got it slightly wrong. When you're taken out into the bushes and given some drug by the fellow members of your tribe, this is not that you are being made a full member of the society it's that you were a full member of the society and now what you're being shown is uh, what's under the board the tricks of the trade you're being turned into not a full member of the society but what I what my brother has called uh, an extra environmental you're coming from outside And this is a kind of maturity that many people never, not only never attain, it never enters their mind that such a state even exists. A state, not of alienation exactly, but of ironical, sophisticated insight into the mechanisms of one's own culture and the cultural uh, games that are being played. And, you know, this rap would have been applicable at any time 
that it made sense, certainly any time in the 20th century. But with the rise of these technologies and the acceleration of all this novelty, it becomes more and more important uh, to anchor it in this archaic value pattern accessible uh, through psychedelics. And I don't say this with a sense of urgency. I think it's happening. I don't think there's a problem. I'm just sharing with you how I see it going. Uh, the people who are running uh, the the internet at the developmental and uh, uh, cutting edge level are very psychedelic. I mean, the, the connections are not lost, whether it's consciously or unconsciously apprehended. Somehow it can be sensed that... Uh, the whole countercultural thrust since the 60s has been coherently one thing. It's about boundary dissolution and connectivity and uh, strange pictures in your head, whatever that means. So it's uh, the psychedelic experience from being a clandestine experience and now I'm speaking of Western culture in the 20th century, from being a clandestine experience of an individual or of a caress is becoming the general model for the organization of uh, global society. Whether anybody realizes it or not, this idea of all information in circulation, of a never-sleeping global mind with all... what, In a sense, what's happening is that the unconscious mind is a luxury the human species cannot afford at this point in our dilemma. And so the unconscious mind is simply rising into consciousness by being hardwired into this uh, global infrastructure. Well, so that's my take on it. What's your take on it? (laughs) Does anybody want to say anything? Yeah. I was wondering what this list of psychedelic plants was for in terms of are there differences in one's experience with these and are there ones that are more or less readily grown in one's backyard or greenhouse? Or, um, oh yeah, well, it's in common. What do they do to us? It's a it's a big. Uh, issue. Yes, I mean, when I talk about psychedelics, uh, I'm basically talking about alkaloids uh, with that occur in plant metabolism and have a history of human usage in aboriginal shamanism. So that would be things like peyote, ayahuasca, mushrooms, certain snuffs, cannabis, Detura, although deturas are not alkaloids, or maybe they are, but the subfamily is tropane. Anyway, they're chemically different. Uh, the notion here is simply that uh, there are a lot of problems with accessing altered states of consciousness, and many of these problems are artificially induced by frightened uh, governments restricting access so it's slowly dawned on people that these chemicals occur in most environments in many plants. And with a little chemical strategy and a little cookery and a little shamanic strategy, out of most environments you can coax some kind of kick-ass consciousness-altering plant or combination of plants. Uh, without resort to the local criminal syndicalists who may be prowling the streets. So it's sort of become a, 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 I don't know, I don't want to demean it, but a fad, a hobby, an avocation of people to grow these plants. If you want me to recommend one that might get you off, not kill you, and keep you out of jail, um, well, the one that we're all 
very interested in at the moment is salvia divinorum. Salvia divinorum is a, a plant that for years was carried in the psychedelic literature as possibly hallucinogenic, but nobody could get off on it. It's a mint that grows in the mountains of Mexico. Uh, and then a few years ago, uh, an anthropologist, Brett Blosser, some of you probably know Brett, he's been to Esalen, uh, he was studying these Mazatec Indians and finally just put it to them and they took him off in the bushes and, you know, got him so loaded that he was raving about it. So then the chemists moved in. The chemists had visited the situation before, but with a simple alkaloid test. You know, you have this thing called Dragendorf's reagent, and you mash it up with a plant, and if it turns color, it's got alkaloids. Well, you do this in the field. Well, they had tested salvia divinorum, and it was negative for alkaloids, so having never encountered a psychedelic that wasn't an alkaloid, they felt confident in rejecting it. Once these reports began to come in, they went back through, and in fact it was an underground chemist. I'm not sure he wants his name stated, but anyway, again, someone a frequent visitor to Esalen. Uh, and he went back and with quite simple procedures, lo and behold, out comes a crystalline white powder, and uh, he following the famous example of Albert Hoffman with LSD, that you should start a hundred times smaller than you think is where the action is. Uh, he smoked one milligram, one milligram, a thousand mics. I mean, that's a grain of salt of this stuff. And, uh, you know, com completely lost it. And... Uh, so then he went back and discovered that years previously there had been analysis done on this plant and that a compound called alpha-salvinorine had been isolated and characterized but never given to test animals or human beings. So he sent for a chromatographic standard of this compound and immediately smoked it up upon arrival. And it did exactly what the stuff he'd gotten out of the plant had done to him. So then he knew that the compound in the plant was alpha-salvinorine, a diterpene, uh, a, a, a compound in a chemical family previously unknown to contain psychoactive uh, material. And... Uh, word spread and uh, people smoke this roll bombers out of the dried leaves eat put quids of the fresh leaves in their mouths and then in some vanishingly small case few cases of the truly intrepid people have extracted the stuff to crystal and smoked it I don't urge you to do that I mean 500 micrograms of this stuff. This is the first compound found in nature active at that range. I mean, LSD is active at 500 micrograms, but it's it was thought for decades to be the only drug active at that range. I mean, somebody, I think somebody once said to me, you want to know what a human being getting loaded on 500 micrograms of LSD is like? He said, that's like one red ant ripping apart the Empire State Building in 40 minutes. You know, I mean, it's dramatic that such a little bit of material can do what it does. Well, this stuff in, Al in Salvia Divinorum is in the ballpark, definitely. And, uh, you know... DMT test pilots return white-knuckled and ashen from whatever it is that lies on the other side of uh, this stuff. As a plant, you know, the good news is it's easy to grow. It's easy to grow enough to take. It's not illegal. It is not illegal to grow, extract, transport, advocate, use in therapy, uh, it's just simply not illegal in any way. It'll be very interesting to see how the establishment handles this particular compound because 
this is not the 1960s when you can just uh, the way the drug laws are written uh, for something to be made illegal at the pleasure of the attorney general or someone like that it has to be a structural near relative of an already illegal compound and this isn't this isn't so the only way this stuff could be made illegal is for uh, scientific evidence to be brought into court that there's something wrong with it and causing hallucinations at this point I don't think is enough it has to there has to be some physical toxicity or some demonstrable public health uh, problem or this will probably get through I think really what salvia means and then there are others I could talk about but this isn't a psychobotany gathering or maybe it is. Uh, but I think what all this means is that the drug laws are not going to be repealed. They're just simply going to become irrelevant because there are so many loopholes, chemical exceptions, local sources of every illegal thing. I mean, take DMT, for example. DMT is a Schedule One drug, heavily controlled, but since all those laws were passed, it's come to be realized that every human being has it in them. Well, so you're holding. You are potentially arrestable for uh, holding and transporting a Schedule One drug. Well, then that's obviously absurd, but on the other hand, the law has never been fought on those grounds. So uh, ayahuasca is a perfect example. In a sense, ayahuasca is not... Uh, a drug because everything in it that is working uh, occurs in your hum in the human body anyway just in smaller amounts and in a different ratio so you know unless we propose to make human brains illegal which you know I'm sure there are some people who would line up for that with great enthusiasm but I think that's Buchanan's 17% that we just have to put up with uh, most people realize, I think, that the chemistry of consciousness and the chemistry of nature are uh, co-evolved and equally complex, and the place where one stops and the other begins is a fool's, fool's game. So if any of you are interested, salvia, you know, it's easy to sit here. I mean, talking about psychedelics is very, 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 very different from taking psychedelics. Uh, it's all very well to listen to me spiel my spiel, but the most important thing you could possibly do is actually somehow contort the contents of this evening to the point where it got you loaded. And uh, that's probably best approached legally, safely, horticulturally, humbly, <laughs> through salvia divinorum. How, how long does that experience last? Well, the way I like to do it, people do it different ways. Um, the way I like to do it is I weigh about 35 grams of it, which is quite a pile. And then I remove the vein, the mid-vein of the leaf with my fingernail, just to drop the volume down. And then when it's all done, I have this very nice soft pile of green leaves. And then I roll it up and fold it up and put it in my cheek and um, lie down where I can see uh, a digital clock. And uh, what I'm waiting for is minute 17 or so. And right around then, you know, you get visual streaming purple and chartreuse blobs of light floating past your eyes. This is not the psychedelic experience. It's the prodrome of hallucination. You sometimes see this after orgasm. But in the case of the salvia thing, after two or three minutes of this, it doesn't go away. Instead, it, you know, moves on to the next level. And this is extremely peculiar plastic, stretching, folding, machine-like hallucinations. It reminds me, some of you may know, Salvador Dali's painting, uh, 
Ode to the Revolution Number 5, construction, soft construction in baked beans. Do you know that <laughs> painting? Yeah. Well, yes. It's like that, and you sort of feel like that. And uh, the hallucinations are very bright. They are not like what I always think when it's happening is, my God, I can't believe this stuff is legal. It actually is working. You know, it's not like it's almost working or sort of working or any of these, you know, with these other horrible legal things. This one... Works. It works, <laughs> and it works enough that if that you actually reach a place with it where you wonder if it's not going to work too much, which tells you just how good it is. Of course, at that point, you're probably at the top of the mountain. Just as you begin to have anxiety about, well, how strange will this be? You're probably coming around the corner. Um, and then I and then you come down in about forty five minutes and go to sleep. Total time being an hour. Mm-hmm. Rather interesting hour. If it didn't taste so bad, uh, I could do it three nights a week. In other words, it, it is, it, and yet it's much. It's it's like it's. I don't know exactly how to explain it. It is absolutely satisfying and very powerful, but it doesn't seem, uh, at that dose, it it doesn't seem like it could become a wild horse. At higher doses, the stories begin to get harder to map. And uh, people who fiddle with the pure compound are obviously really uh, intrepid. It seems to be about some kind of... My brother described it very well the other night. He seems to be susceptible to it. Some people are and some aren't. And he uh, was at a conference somewhere and uh, there was just dried material rolled. And he just took a big hit basically to see how it tasted, to sort of get the feeling for how it tasted. And it, it folded him. I mean, he came apart, he twitched on the ground, and his description of it was, he said it was like, it was like being rotated to the left. There was this strange counterclockwise twist, and uh, then you're like in this other dimension. You've just been hyperdextro-rotary homogenized and now you're in a previously unsuspected domain of space and time uh, that is immediately contingent to this dimension but only by that means. And people do... Um, uh, people talk about something folds, something twists or untwists. There's definitely a sense of being moved. That's how, and the come on is faster than DMT, which is hard to imagine. I mean, the, the come on, in fact, is so fast that you don't act, you sort of discover yourself there. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're waiting for it to come on and then you realize that for some time it has actually been on and it was your perceptions that were were lagging. No. I mean, the taste, if you do it, the fresh leaf in the mouth, it tastes very much like a very large mouthful of very leafy leaf. It's bitter. It's bitter. But it's not appalling. It's just bitter. One could probably get used to it, you know. After the 17 minutes, do you spit it out or do you keep it in your mouth? Well, I used to tell people to spit it out at minute 17, and then some people couldn't, there were complaints. And so now what I tell people is keep it in your mouth until it works. But some, unless you're a hard case, somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes, it's going to find you. Yeah. Um, two things. One, going back, is, um, do you, where do you see technology, do you see technology playing a game in the altered state of consciousness? And 
all. Um, reading about superstring theory and probabilities, mm-hmm. etc., and listening to you, I can't help but make this connection of these altered states being shifted into just a slightly less probable place than us being here now. And what is your take on that? Well, first of all, how technology relates to altered states uh, on a trivial level, it, I mean, not trivial, but but on a obvious level, I guess. Uh, it's really create. It's really knit, knitted the community together. I mean, the internet empowers all marginal, are all marginalia, and God knows we're marginal. So the fact that there are these conferences and email lists where people feel free to say anything and to pass on all kinds of botanical, chemical, shamanic information means nobody need now get into trouble through ignorance because there are vast FAQ files on the net and any, you know, if 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 you've gotten some DMT and you're wondering what it does, there's an afternoon's worth of reading on the internet, you know, Gracie and Zarkov take a trip, McKenna meets the basketballs, and on and on and on. Uh, so that's very important. But as I said, somewhat uh, pedestrian. The thing that excites me about these informational technologies is I think we're going to be able to use virtual reality to show each other the insides of our own heads and that this has never been possible. I mean, we know each other by our surfaces and our symbols. You know, we make small mouth noises and we assume we share the same dictionary and by such rickety infrastructure as this, we build community and understanding. But if everybody worked on a... uh, the mansion of their soul in cyberspace and you could invite people in and say you want to know who I am this is not I'm not this this 6 foot 2 inch piece of meat don't that's not it here's what it is here's my hopes my dreams my fears my past accomplishments my unfinished projects uh, my catastrophes uh an incredible amount of intimacy and hence mutual appreciation and uh, empathy. So I think it will... that the whole thing is bandwidth. Bandwidth simply means the... on one level it means the speed at which information is moved from one point to another, but in, in experiential terms what bandwidth means is how deep the image is. You know, a telephone call is very low bandwidth. A television, assisted telephone call is higher bandwidth. And as we expand uh, bandwidth between each other, we will dissolve our differences. I mean, this is my faith. I think it's amazing that we've built a global civilization in an environment of 4,000 languages and no better mode of communication than small mouth noises and their electronic equivalents. And so we're about to take an enormous leap toward understanding each other. Uh, What we will understand, I don't know. A friend of mine who was somewhat speaking ironically, but I think he meant it, said, all decadence is is finding out what the neighbors are really doing. You know, that what society is, is an elaborate structure to keep us believing certain things about each other, which are in fact not true. And that when we find out they're not true, then we're going to have to deal with that. Uh, Imagining what these truths might be is food for thought, certainly. so virtual reality, you know, will show each other the inside of our heads and our dreams and then my own private 
obsession. I hope we can see simulations of psychedelic states. I mean, this is where all this graphics creativity and three-dimensional graphics power and because anybody who has taken psychedelics much at all knows that there are realms of beauty in there more astonishing than the Sistine Chapel or I don't know Angel Falls for that matter I mean the most beautiful things in the universe <laughs> are inside the human mind and you know I was trained at one point as an art historian and if art is the effort to get those <coughs> mental objects into the shared world of social space then art has a lot of catching up to do I mean the very best art has <coughs> been a very halting uh, you know you discover more art in your own head than the entire canon of Western art since the Renaissance. And who are we? Just ordinary people. So uh, it will be immensely empowering. The question about superstring theory, I don't claim to understand it. I also suspect that fashion is m now rules the physics department and it's all changing so quickly you know, physics has all, for 200 years or 150 years, physics was the paradigmatic science. All sciences aspired to be as scientific as physics because often in physics, theory and experimentally derived values will agree with each other out to five or six decimal points of measurement. Well, God, in sociology, if you get within 10%, you hail yourself as rigorous. So, And biology sort of falls in between there, but it's very sloppy compared to physics. But physics is, uh, once they pushed beyond uh, the Hamiltonian model of the atom and into the domain of the quanta, the phenomena that are encountered are so counterintuitive that nobody knows exactly how to interpret it. I mean, the people who actually do the work of quantum physics on a daily basis work in a pure mathematical language and actually make a considerable effort not to try and think about what does this mean in English because it means stuff so crazy that you can't even that it's just so counterintuitive. I mean, for instance, a month ago in Science News, they reported, uh, what was it, a beryllium atom that they were able to excite into this peculiar quantum state where, as far as any test they could tell, it was in two places at one time. Well, was it in two places at one time? Or is it that English is simply inadequate to say what it was? And this is some kind of deceiving lower dimensional description of it uh, non-locality is this phenomenon that was thought so squirrely and improbable that in the 20s when they formulated the quantum theory they they had two quantum theories on the table in front of them both giving identical predictions mathematically but using different assumptions. And uh, one of them had non-locality built into it, and the other had uncertainty built into it. And they thought uncertainty was a smaller outrage to reason than non-locality. So they chose the Heisenberg-Bohr model with this uncertainty principle embedded in it. But now, in the last five years, uh, non-locality which previously was just this it was sort of a, a joke that these equations predicted non-locality but some people thought up experiments to actually test this and non-locality is as experimentally verifiable as any other phenomenon in the quantum world and what does it mean? It means that all matter in the universe 
is somehow connected to all other matter in the universe instantaneously without subject to the inverse square law or the speed of light. And, you know, uh, this essentially uh, um, vindicates mysticism, which has been at loggerheads with the enterprise of Western science since it began. It also may mean, you know, the alchemists like to say what is here is everywhere, what is not here is nowhere. What it implies it potentially is that all information is immediately available, that we need not go to the Andromeda galaxy or the moons of Jupiter or anywhere else to find out the answer to any question. Somehow information is holographically and fractally and homogeneously distributed through the space-time matrix. Well, God, if you could get a a technology together based on that, uh, it it would be the greatest revolution since the birth of human language or something like that. Yeah. I I suspect that light is a great enough technology to be able to... Yeah, I suspect so, too. Uh, One of the things... one of the things I mentioned, and one of the I things... Worry about the, if I have a concern about the machine part or the hard wiring, is that it can take the attention away from... <laughs> the biologic. My, the biolo- my being able to do that, you know, which may mean needing the help of some other minds and stuff also to be able to kind of reach that... <clears throat> Well, I think technology, the human brain is the god of technological innovation. In other words, we want to do it that way. We want to do it that small, that fast, that neatly. So as technology advances, it's going to look more and more like biology. Nanotechnology, which as you all probably know, is this evolving technological field where you work with single atoms. You build up things atom by atom. Well, this is how biology does it. Uh, DNA is read by ribosomes that specify the assembly of proteins atom by atom. This is how we will do it. So the the technologies of the future will be more and more quote-unquote natural appearing. And finally, my fantasy is, you know, a world where when you want to contact the Internet, you just walk over and put your hand on a tree and uh, you immediately have T6 connection to uh, the the global bio-cybernetic matrix in, in cyberspace. Everything that we're doing, like building the Internet, for example, uh, you can build the Internet, you can lay fiber optic cable everywhere and put up space satellites or stuff like that, but another way to do it would just recognize that the mycelial network already present in the soil probably has room for you to run your messages through it uh, while it's doing the business of being alive. So, you know, the telephones of the future may look more like mushrooms than uh, they do today. I mean, by, uh, nature is obviously the model. And see, our technology now is a technology of heavy metals, High temperatures, I mean, we weld things, we melt things, and when we build, we, we assemble pieces of things and then we bring them together under high pressure and high heat to make automobiles and aircraft and this sort of thing. Nature, notice that nature meaning organic nature, not volcanoes and hot springs, but organic nature accomplishes all of her miracles 
under 115 degrees Fahrenheit. There's no welding of beryllium and uh, this sort of thing. So we could do that too. And uh, when you use cool temperatures like that, well, then you don't generate toxic gases and strange physical byproducts like sulfur dioxide and mercuric oxide and uh, all of this toxic material. So the machine age as we have known it was simply a, a very brief episode in human beings' relationship to the construction of uh, prosthesis. I mean, I more and more think of it that way. I mean, the touching a tree to get to the internet, that's pretty far out. I mean, in other words, there are steps to that that we don't know how to take. But I've talked at other times to this group about what I call these black contact lenses, except they're not contact lenses, they're actual implants in the back of your eyelids so that when you close your eyes there are menus hanging in space. Uh, that's, that's not even nanotechnology. That's doable today. I mean, it might cost a billion dollars, but if it were a fighter plane, we could deliver it in six years. It's uh, easily done. So what I hope will happen is that we will retract this bulky toxic, archaic, industrially based infrastructure and become more and more aboriginal in our presentation to an observer. But in fact, through implants, prosthesis, nanocytes crawling around on the surface of our skin and inside our bodies and in the environment and so forth and so on, we will actually be becoming... Uh, at the same time that we make our peace with nature, we will continue to uh, technologically evolve toward whatever it is that we are evolving toward. I don't understand what it is. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I haven't paid any attention to this before, but this talk was given in August of 1989, and it just may be one of the earliest recordings of Terence talking about his virtual reality idea of uh, the back of the eyelid implants. And that story of Terence's is uh, also retold in one of my podcasts featuring Fraser Clark, and uh, I think it's podcast number 45. I really had to uh, laugh when Terrence said that if you had a question about DMT, you could now find enough information on the Internet that would take a whole afternoon to read. <laughs> and uh, he made that statement in August of 1989, uh, well, which was still a couple of years before the web came into being. But just now I did a search on DMT, and uh, there were over 5,490,000 pages that mentioned DMT in some way. Now, uh, there's a good example of what is meant by an information explosion. 25 years ago, it took an entire afternoon to read everything about DMT that you could find online. But today, let's say you could read a page every 30 seconds. Well, it would take over five years of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It would take over five years of reading at 30 seconds per page to cover the available online information about DMT today. And, of course, uh, by the time that you spent those five years reading about DMT, <laughs> well, there most likely will be even more information added to the pile. So that's what's meant by surfing the wave of information that's growing every day. You can either surf on the crest of the wave and have an exhilarating ride, or you can let it crush you with its immensity. You're just not going to be able to read everything. Get used to it. And uh, there's one more thing I should mention, and that's the fact that during the 25 years that have passed since this talk was given, well, many states and countries have now passed laws to regulate salvia divinorum. So uh, if that plant interests you, uh, well then, before you do anything else, go to Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, Arrowid.org, and look through their salvia vault. 
Among uh, many other things about salvia that you're going to find there is its legal status uh, around the world and in the various states of the United States. And also, uh, the person that Terrence mentioned as uh, having done that initial research uh, with salvia is Daniel Siebert. And uh, Daniel I interviewed in my podcast number 81. And if you listen to that interview, you may remember that one of the things that Daniel and I have in common is the fact that we both met our wives the same week and at the same conference in Palenque. And uh, should John Hanna ever produce another Mind States conference where the audience participates in a huge psychedelic trivia game, well, now you know the answer to at least one question. <laughs> and for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.